Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks, episode 26. In this episode, I talk to Barbara Miller, who works at the Frisco Native American Museum in Frisco, North Carolina, which is on Hatteras Island. And we talk about some of the things the museum is doing, how it was founded, and how they got a lot of their artifacts. Before I go any further, there's a book called a Historian's Coast, Adventures into the Tidewater Pass, written by David Soselski. I've mentioned him before a few other times because he writes some great stories and books and does some great research on the Outer Banks and Inner Banks and the coastal low-lying areas of North Carolina. And in one of the chapters, he has an article called The Smoke and Ashes of Croatan, where he talks about a professor from East Carolina University whose name is Dr. David Phelps, and according to Dr. David Phelps, who's done quite a bit of archaeology on Hatteras Island, at its peak, the tribe on Hatteras Island had about 5,000 people living there, which blows me away when you consider what a small area of land it is and that it's not the most uh, productive in agriculture. But they did all this through a little bit of agriculture, a lot of fishing, and probably some kind of hunting for wa uh, waterfowl and that type of thing. So very impressive that there was a culture down there that was so rich, which made me want to stop by the Frisco Native American Museum even more. So I was glad to sit down with Barbara Miller. Note that some of the, the bird sounds that you hear are not real birds. They're actually recording from the exhibits that we were sitting uh, amongst. A correction I'd like to make is that I inadvertently called a David Soselski book by the wrong name. It's actually called The Mariner's Song, a book I highly recommend. And finally, I'd like to mention that the museum would greatly appreciate any donations. It is an old, an old building. It definitely needs some TLC. The artifacts are amazing. We should take care of this great resource. And we talk about how you can help out in the podcast, which we will start right about now. Barbara, tell me what uh, you do here at the museum. My official title is Director of Education and Public Relations, but we are a three-person operation. So it's myself, Amber Roth, and Joyce Bornfriend is our director. And so basically we're all um, chief cook and bottle washers, so we do whatever we have to. Um, we make crafts. Uh, I work on getting information out. I'm sort of in charge of getting the stories out on Facebook. Um, Amber does the website that we have. Um, and then uh, she does a lot of the electronic uh, videos that you've seen. We give her ideas. She puts it together. Uh, she's a graphic person. Um, I do a lot of work with uh, posting on different native sites and et cetera, spreading our information as we can. We do some tours, but you know, with the tour industry changing from COVID, we haven't really seen that a whole lot. Right. So. Right. so is there a board for this organization? Uh, yes, there is. It's a five-member board, and um, we have, I think we rotate people out every so many years. Uh, that would definitely be a Miss Born for in question. Um, we have a group of extraordinary volunteers, some of which have been with the museum for decades. Wow. And um, they come in and they help us build things. We do a yearly gathering where we work on projects the whole you know, weekend. And, um, and we have a lot of people that come every year, but it's just the three of us you know, running around. Right. And, and what's the overall objective of this uh, Officially, museum. we are a 501c3 educational organization. Right. And so it's about educating people about natives, 
yes, we are still here, no, we are not all alike, and also talking about the tribes that were here, um, trying to get that information out. And we spend a lot of time answering questions when people are here in the museum about items and how they work, and uh, certain questions pop up all the time. Uh, interestingly enough, the beading, people look at the beads and, well, how did they make those beads? And these are all trade beads that came, you know, when the Europeans came, and more Amazing. modern beads. But we actually have a display of what they used before, shells, and an elk tooth dress, for instance, was considered the height of wow on the plains, so women would have that. So you used everything. Right. And it's amazing that it got all the way to here, right? I mean, I mean, did, I mean, did, was that stuff located here, or was that? Um, Carl traveled all over. Okay. So he taught among two reservations. He was among the Hopi and among the De uh, Lenni Lenape, or Delaware. And um, he was gifted things there. And he also, from a young child, um, always had this understanding that you hang on to things for the yeah. next generation. So whenever he got a hold of something, it was about protecting it. And that was kind of his main, we must protect this. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this he gathered over the years. So, so go, go ahead and introduce Carl to us real quickly. Well, the, the founder of the start of the museum was Carl Bornfriend. Um, he came here, he had already been collecting things. He came here for a job and um, met Miss, Miss Joyce. Uh, when he came over the bridge, we have a lovely little bio of him. Uh, he took one look and said, oh, I have to live down here. Yeah. So even though he was working in Manio, he was living down here in Adelis. Yeah. And uh, he bought uh, the house next door. Okay. And then this came, building became available. It was a gift shop and he picked it up as well. And that's when he started the museum. Open only on weekends, um, right? built all the, the things by himself. He believed, believed in recycling like no one else. Right. And um, uh, started out with just one room, then it was two rooms, and just built on and added things. Excellent. And uh, you, you gave me the quick walkthrough, and uh, I might have to spend a couple more days here just to see everything, because <laughs> there's a lot to absorb and a lot to see, and it's just fascinating. It's amazing. You guys have done a, an, a, an amazing job down here. Um, do you get many visitors that are also Native Americans popping we in through? We do. Here? Um, over near where the bust of Carl is and the, our guest book, we have them sign and we ask for their tribal affiliation. And every year we update a list that shows all the different tribes that have visited. Wow. So that list is not everybody who's represented here, but it's, you know, sometimes we have those that are represented that are not on the list. But those are people who've actually walked in the door and said, yes, this is my, my nation. So, Very interesting. Do, do you see... Uh, uh, a nation, a common nation, keep popping up over and over again? Um, well, most of the North Carolinas have been here. Okay. Um, so we have a lot of Salagi or Cherokee. Um, we see uh, Hawasaponi. We see Lumbee. We see um, some Okanichi Saponi. We've seen some Kohari um, and Meharan. And then we've had a lot of Virginia tribes. But then we've had tribes from Canada. Wow. Um, and even, you know, going into the South Americas come up and, you know, identify wow. their tribe. So, um, we get, we get a lot of interesting people. Yeah. I mean, your, your cool little museum in the middle of Frisco <laughs> you know? and I was just driving, you know, when you drive down from, I live in Southern shores and you drive down and, you know, okay, down, there's Nags Head, then there's the Tri-Village and then you hit. Uh, Avon and things get a little, you know, pokier, and then you get down here. And it's like, oh, okay, this is Hatteras Island to me, you know. 
Well, this is how it was in the 70s and stuff when I grew up coming down here. My it parents hasn't changed much, yeah. <laughs> were coming down here before I came along. And I'll tell you, you know, the first time I hadn't been here for about five years, and my mom died in 94, and this was maybe longer than five years, and I came down here and I was going through Kill Devil Hills going, what happened? <laughs> you know, right. that just blew my body. Right. And then I got down here and I was like, oh. Phew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it hasn't reached here yet, which is good. No, I love it down here. I wish I, I could come down here more often. Um, so, have you had any association or th there's some archaeological digs going on nearby? Have have they stopped by or have you participated in any of these? Um, no, I'm not an archaeologist, but uh, Miss Amber has spoken with. There was a group of, of digs working with the Cambridge Museum in England. Okay. And they came in and talked to her about a lot of things. Um, there is also some uh, one run by a, a couple of local people. And um, we know of them, and uh, we've spoken with some of the people, but we haven't actually been involved with any of the modern ones. Now, at one point in time, some of the items we have here were found by locals and donated to the museum, things that they found wow. on the island in their property. Very cool. And um, uh, the room where the moose is was originally where that was, but now it has, has its own room here. Um, and then um, we have some pieces that um, came from some of the ECS, ECU with, with David Phelps. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, we've, of course, read those reports and, and that kind of thing. So I'm sorry, did he donate a few of his finds to you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we have a couple of, I believe, pots that were from him. Okay. Or what's left of pots from him. Right. Um, and, um, uh, but primarily it's been, uh, well, and then, of course, the canoe was actually found on the property by Carl. That's we have, amazing. Yeah, that, that was. So you told me when I walked in, go ahead and say it again, what, what he found. Um, it was after one of the hurricanes, and I don't remember which one, but we're talking a considerable time ago. Um, that he found washed up um, the remnants of a canoe. Now, he looked at it and knew it was important, so he tucked it away because that was Carl. Yeah. And um, then they had a flood at Lake Phelps, which brought up a lot of these canoe pieces, parts, and whole canoes. Right. Um, again, Cypress canoes from the bottom. And he went, oh, my God, because there was a big article on right. the paper. So the gentleman who worked with the people at Lake Phelps, I'd have to look up his name, um, actually has been and seen what our remnants of the canoe are. And he says, oh, that's definitely one of these canoes. So wow. we, we haven't had it carbon dated, haven't won the lottery, so it's kind of expensive. Um, they recently found in Lake Matamesquite, uh, over 900-year-old wow. uh, remnant. They found several um, canoes down in Louisiana and Georgia areas. Um, up in Canada, also these big Cypress-heavy canoes. Um, they have carbon dated some of the ones in Canada at over 1,500 years. And um, I, and some of these run twenty four to longer feet long. They're That's just amazing. huge. Yeah. So. Which means they were probably using them to travel some great distances if mm -hmm. you were you know making them that big. Well, and also for rough seas or rough lakes. Yep. Like obviously the Great Lakes are not calm. For, um, <laughs> right. But for instance, if you get into some of the um, eastern areas um, where they have a lot of birch bark, they made canoes out of that. A, it was available. B, it was light, and they have lots of little streams. So suddenly they run out of water. You grab this thing, run over the top hill, and plop it in the water over there. Right. You can't do that with one of these. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, you know, short of a team of Need ten. Need a little manpower to do around. it. Yep. Uh, that's very interesting. So just to let everybody know, there's... Uh, there's a lot of different tribes represented, and it's all been based upon just 
the gifting if they've had enough to make a display or what have you. But there's a lot of local stuff that's been found. Um, do, do you have, if you could say what percentage of this museum is local finds, uh, historical finds, um, and, and maybe give some of the highlights. Obviously that, that uh, canoe is a huge highlight in my book, but could you mention some of the other local stuff that may have been found and gifted to you? Um, we have some shell remains from midden piles. Now a midden pile is a trash heap, so that's where they kept them threw them when they were through. They obviously ate a lot of shellfish. Yeah. Um, and we have some of those. We have uh, pottery remains. Um, the clay here is not the best, so they would mix in um, ground up shell. Right. It adds lime and calcium, so it reduces the acidity of the clay and it makes it more workable, plus it acts as grog to move heat through so it doesn't kaboom on you. Mm. And um, so those are probably our best and, and our canoe. A lot of things would not have survived, gourds, Right. wouldn't have survived um, and uh, you know moccasins would have dis dis right. deteriorated especially with the acidity of our ground and you said arrowheads have been found around here yes um, the thing is is that there were huge trade routes throughout all of the Americas right. so we don't have great rocks here for for making arrowheads right. in case you know people have seen that but what has been found just in last year someone stepped on an arrowhead in the ocean here down here on Hatteras Island and it was black and it had been tumbled, so you can see where it had been sort of worn down by the ocean. Yep. But it was chert. Now, we don't have chert anywhere around here. Yeah. You're talking Tennessee, West Virginia, Kentucky, these areas. And they're, the trade groups were bringing them in. And, of course, we were sending shells and stuff out. Um, and probably feathers as well, because those were big. Right. Um, so we have these things that pop up. Now, we have a whole collection of points, some of which were donated from James River in Virginia, okay. and they're marked. Um, we've got chert in there, we've got uh, flint. Um, so there's a lot of different things. There's some quartzite, which would have probably been in the Virginia areas and stuff. Right. So You bring up a good point. There are pretty much no rocks on the Outer Banks, natural <laughs> occurring rocks. So, But being on uh, waterways, it was a natural um, you know, transport uh, for a lot of things, you know, north and south. Maybe not so much east and west, but definitely north and south. Um, well, and they used bone and shells as well. True. The idea that you, you take a life, you have to use everything. So you can yep. do you know, a pretty good job of, say, cleaning a hide by using a shell edge. Right. Um, and then the bones could be made needles, fish hooks. Um, they used scraping tools as it broke and shattered. You just simply made a different, smaller tool. Another reason we don't find a lot of that. Um, right. So... There's a guy named Dave, and I hope I say his name right, Siselski. Uh, he wrote the book I mentioned before, The uh, Mariner Song, but he also uh, wrote some books on uh, what was going on around here. And, he, and the researchers he talked to estimated that the population was about 5,000 people. Uh, yeah, four or 5,000 was what Phelps said. That's just amazing. Um, based on the midden piles, look how much it is over the time, how much people might would have eaten. Um, the midden piles, you have obviously lots of shellfish. We have rabbits down here. We have, um, you know, deer. We have mini deer. We call them mini deer because they're tiny. Um, yeah. <laughs> we have uh, um, various birds. Of course, obviously, you've got geese. You know, in the winter, yeah. you see all the snow geese and everything. And pretty much, if it didn't move fast enough, it, it got et. Right. So. And, and do you think, so, and we mentioned this earlier that, 
they were helpful to the first Europeans that kind of showed up. Um, and do you think they helped them find food and, and catch their own food and, you know, help their diet out a little bit when they were locating um, I'm sure they did. Uh, don't, you, if, the best thing you can read, and it will drive you a little nuts because it's written in Old English, but is a brief entry report of the newfound land of Virginia published in 1590. So it was of the John White expeditions. Um, there are woodcuts of many of his images, and you'll see them actually in the videos we have here in this section. Um, and they talk about the different plants that they were excited to see and the plants that they explained. Um, they talked about various animals they could eat. They were very convinced you couldn't eat a raccoon and, and things like this. Right. Um, some of the printing techniques are a little odd, so you just kind of go through the sentence and think, well, that's probably what they meant, and right. go back again. Um, but it gives you a lot of information, including old maps, because this island here on Hatteras, this part with Frisco and Buxton and everything, was six miles wide at one point mm -hmm. until storm damages and general shifting happened. So there's pr probably a lot of stuff out to the water right. that's either been worn down or destroyed or just simply there. And to our knowledge, and this may be knowledge that wasn't shared, obviously, for certain reasons, they have not found burial sites here of natives. So, right. well, what does that mean to you? Uh, that they're probably out to sea or the or the, or the sound. They personally. got washed away. Yeah. Now, up north in Kerduck, they did find um, a couple of sort of like communal burial areas where they had apparently sort of like a graveyard, except for they kept opening up the same place and putting people as far as I remember what I read. Okay. But basically, they were like a communal Is that right? spot. Yeah. Okay. Do you think they migrated at all? Um, not really. You have, I mean, we live here live year-round. We can survive from the ocean, and, and there's lots of plants and this kind of thing. Um, for instance, cattails. Everybody snorts at cattails, but they made mats out of them for their housing. You mm -hmm. can eat three parts of a cattail. You can eat the root. You can eat the top part when it's green. Um, and then you can eat about a foot or so of the bottom if you peel the outside. So you've got a, a very versatile food source there. Um, and uh, you have yopon tea, which was also used as a medicine as well as a drink, depending on how it was prepared. Mm -hmm. And um, um, birds, if you know, we're here in the winter where we have huge bird populations. Yeah. So there's nothing to go and harvest those birds. Um, but I think that they showed them fresh water obviously would have been hard to learn to find. And then... Um, various medicines because they do talk about that a list of plants in that book about what they were exposed to the english were very interested in the pine trees because they used a mixture of turpentine and pine sap to make a paint for their boats to keep them waterproof oh yeah and that's why they were black um, so and we have examples of two eel pots here that were from you know probably the virginia area um and this area they would have caught eels and eaten them it's not right. something that's common now, but... <laughs> right. So. But they, they did what they had to do. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit, uh, let's, can you talk about some of the words and names uh, that the Native Americans, that we, we still use from the Native Americans that were here? I, I guess like, you know, Yopon, Kinnikeet, stuff like that. Um, Yopon, yes. Uh, Kinnikeet, I'm not so sure about. Um, the tribes up and down the Outer Banks, so from um, Roanoke Island down to here, spoke an Algonquian language. 
we don't see any instances of them fighting amongst each other. There's no records of, of warfare. So they were most likely related tribes. There are a lot of tribes out there that had cousin tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at, you call the Sioux, which is actually a French word, but then you get the Lakota and the Nakota, the Dakota, the whole group, they have multiple council fires. So we feel that they were probably one entire nation and they were different villages with their own chiefs and that kind of thing, which was fairly common. Um, there is right now a little bit of conflict going on in Okakrote because according to what the English wrote, it, they were Algonquian speakers called the Wakakan. And now there's some claims by Tuscaroras that they may have been related to them, uh, which they were actually an Iroquoian speaker. So there's a little bit of difference there. Yeah. Um, we know that, um, um, so we had the, the Croato in here. Mm-hmm. You had the Pakawak in Avon. And you had the Hatarask up in the tri-villages area. So the name there comes from their language. Um, it's an Algonquian language, so it might be, you might be able to catch some words in Algonquian that would lead you to that. Um, I've heard several different things about Kinnikeet, so that's why I have a question mark there. Okay. So... All right. Do you think there's still some uh, DNA on the eastern half of North Carolina um, from the tribes that were here? I'm not a DNA scientist, but <laughs> I know that there are people here who have families that can trace back. Is that right? To the various tribes. Um, we had a couple of volunteers who traced back to Hatterask. Um, we have a gentleman now who's written a book, um, Gray Parsons, who's written a book about his heritage, which was a mixture of, um, he sort of fictionalized his family research. But he has Native, he has African, and he has um, Scottish, which came from a uh, cabin boy, indentured servant type. Right. So um, we know that there are people who have their heritage, but in the early 1700s, the tribes here were pretty much gone. So that information was lost. they, I believe at one point they were forced inland, or some of them were forced inland, because there was talk about something with Chowan and that area. I don't know if that actually happened. Right. Uh, the records back then were... Yeah. And, and what I found in researching uh, Native, uh, not Native, but the African-American, African-American slaves is they didn't always want to keep good records, if you know what I mean, because they didn't want to be indicted on something. So probably the same thing with the Native Americans that... Well, you also run into, so I've, my mom and I have done a lot of research about our tribal history. If you go back to my great-great-grandfather, okay, he, go, he went in a lot of records by Thomas Miller. Before that, he was the son of Meshugamishia, who was a chief in Indiana who refused to go to Oklahoma. So they said, well, you guys are not recognized anymore. You're not Native anymore. So it's just the guys who go to Oklahoma, you're going to be recognized. But I have found his traditional name, which I believe was pronounced Matosinye, spelled about seven different ways. Yeah. You know, so think about, so you've got someone who's maybe not the most literate person right. trying to spell these names from languages that a lot of native languages don't have certain sounds in them at all. Right. So you're trying to do this. So that's probably happened. So you get, if, if I didn't know who Meshigamishio was, I would have never known who my grandfather, great-great-grandfather was because of that. Yeah, you know, some of my notes, uh, it says between 1711 and 1713, the Algonquian chiefdoms were pretty much destroyed or subjugated, which tells me that, you know, they probably 
the Europeans being opportunistic said, well, here's another chance to have another slave or something like that. So that got... and, and the tribes often certain tribes made uh, allies and it helped them grow in power. So they were able to take other tribes, right. you know, and, and either take their property. Um, there was also not so much a stigma of intermarriage, especially within related groups that that didn't really, you know, nobody went. <gasps> so right. um there would have been a little, and there was a lot of mingling, obviously, with European. So. Right. How do you see the museum transitioning in the future? Well, we would love to expand. Again, that comes down to a fund issue, um, since we are entirely privately funded. Mm -hmm. um, what the other thing we are doing now, you're already seeing parts of it, is we're adding electronic. So we've got this story here, we've got several videos scattered throughout. It's a way to utilize our space, expand the information you're getting without necessarily um, building a whole new building. Right. Um, we would love to uh, keep that up and work toward bringing in more people during the summer to talk to people. We have various groups that we can reach out to to come in and do demonstrations, but where do we put them? you know, the funds to bring them here and that kind of thing. So it makes it difficult. Speaking of which, um, how are visitation numbers looking? I know we are just coming out of a pandemic. I mean, you know, how do they look? Weird. Okay. So we tend to be judging everything by 2019, which was our last normal year before the pandemic. Right. We were closed for 14 months. So now 2021, it was like, in a certain sense, crazy. Yeah. Everybody was like so desperate to get out that we were... Yeah pretty high visitation and people were also in the gift store pretty much look it moved buy it um, <laughs> <laughs> so this year was a little bit different it was a little bit more reserved also mm -hmm. it started out with gas prices and everything being right. so crazy that that changed um what was happening we were seeing down here and um, a lot of talk about you know rental rates and everything um but it's been i mean it hasn't been a huge drop or a huge spike so it's been reasonably consistent um, we're a little off this year, but again, I think that comes down to everybody trying to save pennies. Right. And a little normalization probably mm -hmm. after. Yeah, 2021 after, is an aberration yeah. year, so we just don't even count it. Yeah, I, I was in the water sports business that summer, and uh, yeah, it was an anomaly. <laughs> you know? So I understand. And so if, um, if let's say somebody wanted to make a donation to help your organization, uh, who would they make a check out to? Frisco Native American Museum. Excellent. Um, we have also an arrangement with um, the uh, Outer Banks Community Foundation. We have a special fund there that you can give directly to. Um, certainly, uh, we spent a lot of money putting in a whole new roof this year. Mm -hmm. Well, a two-thirds roof because the building was added on. So that part has a very strange fabric roof. Okay. So that still needs to be replaced. Um, we need some new electronics in the sense of our... Um, Displays and stuff. Well, no, where oh. you plug everything into. Oh, the, the outlets uh, and everything. Um, Your fuse box. Thank you, fuse box. <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, not enough coffee this morning. <laughs> um, and then um, um, we are trying to expand programs. Uh, we used to do a powwow here. I was going to say, I recall that. What happened to that? Um, Carl ran into some issues with his health where he was in and out of the hospital for two years. Gotcha. Um, we also found that um, while we had tremendous support from the Outer Banks um, Visitors Bureau, um, they helped us with uh, grants for advertising, this kind of thing. Um, we had a lot of 
trouble with people finding places down here to stay. So it became difficult for the drum groups and et cetera. Mm. Um, and, you know, we are kind of out. Yep. So it made it a little bit harder to get, you know, a lot of dancers and that kind of thing. Um, and when he was gone for two years, you know, again, volunteers. We had volunteers coming in running all of the, you know, except for the few vendors that came in. So without them, you know, yeah. that made it difficult. I, I seem to, uh, I think I read about a powwow in Plymouth or something, or Edenton maybe. Have you heard of this one? Hmm. No, but I highly recommend powwows.com. Okay. They're a free site. You just put the state in and go to the month you're interested, and it'll tell you if there's one. Okay. Um, there is one in Raleigh, um, usually in March, February or March. It's with the science school. That's well well attended, okay. and uh, I know that all the tribes around here, the Meharan, the Hawasaponi, um, I believe the Kahari do their own. The Cherokee obviously has at least one. The Lumbee have two a year, spring and fall, I believe. So it's all there. Okay, excellent. And when is the museum open? Um, during the summer, so starting a week before uh, Easter, which right. should be around April 2nd or 3rd, somewhere, somewhere like in yeah. there. Yeah. Um, we're going to be open Tuesday through Sunday. 10 30 to 5. Uh, right now we are only open Saturday and Sunday uh, 10 30 to 5. Right now. Right now. Yeah. So up until that time. So uh, we always use this time to do cleaning and fixing and in my case painting right now. <laughs> yeah. So by the way it's it's mid-January here right now so uh, how, how long is your winter? Um, when do you when do you go to winter hours? Uh, January 1st always. January 1st. Okay. Um, through whenever like I said a week before Easter, Easter so it depends on when, when Easter is each year. Yep. Understood. And I'm sorry, when were the hours? Um... 10.30 to 5, every day but Monday Got it. during the summer. Excellent. Um, anything else you want to promote or talk about? Um, well, uh, during the summer we do uh, classes Friday. Um, they're usually aimed at kids and families, so we alternate every other Friday. Um, and Miss Amber does uh, feather painting. I can show you some of her feathers. Um, and I'm going to be doing uh, some simple uh, beaded necklaces with people this year. Nice. And then in the winter, we do some pretty strong uh, workshops. So Amber does pine needle basket making. Um, she does uh, dream catchers. And then um, I do cooking classes. Now, we released our first cookbook two years ago now. Um, and so we alternate. Again, this is on Saturdays because these are two to four hour classes. They're not the quickie one hour that yeah. we do in the summer. Um, and we do um, cooking. So we've done things like Indian pudding. We've done elk stew. All these different things, various fry breads and other breads. Uh, Cherokee bean bread is very popular. Um, sort of, you do it like a tamale, but it's with beans and okay. corn. So, um, and then um, you know, working to get more people in as uh, um, speakers and that kind of thing. So, right. Is there a good day in the summer to visit? I know I, I've I've been. I've lived here 24 years. I know there are some days that are just crazy, stay off the roads. <laughs> but, but is there a day that might be less crowded? That uh, Well, when a... it rains, it's bananas. Yep. So, so be careful when it rains. Yes. And, um, uh, well, Saturday and Sundays are often, because of the changeover days, they're right. a little bit lighter. Um, we do notice that Wednesdays and Thursdays tend to be kind of bananas. Right. Um, Makes sense. Well, yeah, people come in and they get nicely sunburned and then yep. they need to retreat. <laughs> yep. So. I know yeah. those people well. Yes. <laughs> 20, 24 years in the water sports business, I know it well. Yes. So <laughs> I can relate to that. Okay. So uh, either early or late in the week and uh, mm -hmm. um, it may be in the off season if. if uh... Oh, yeah. We get wonderful crews in here um, uh, starting, you know, about mid-September. We get a lot of seniors in and we do have a special senior rate. 
Um, we get um, homeschoolers and that kind of thing, right. which can be fun. Um, we have done school tours, obviously, that kind of got drowned down by the uh, COVID. Yeah. And um, uh, we do have to make arrangements for those, but um, we work on those. Do you have a Facebook page? We do. Our Facebook page is almost 5,000 followers now. What's it called? Frisco Native American Museum. Yeah. Or yep. you can use our initials, FNAM, and you'll, it'll pop up. Okay. And, and what's, uh, what's your website? NativeAmericanMuseum.org. Excellent. And we do a Museum Mondays post, Miss Amber does. It usually comes out Tuesday morning, but it's usually talking about either something going on in the museum or a particular item, like we did Seminole Dolls this week. So, um, you know, information about it so that when you come and see them, you've got, you've got this extra info. Gotcha. So I just thought of one last question. What's the most exciting part for you working here at the museum? Well, I'm, I'm an artist, so I love creating things. And so it's really nice to teach and share that with people. Right. But it's also really nice to, to part of our organization, two-thirds of our organization is about educating people about natives. Right. So um, we like to talk about the things that aren't commonly known, like people know the Code Talkers World War II. Very few people know about there were World War I Code Talkers that started this whole thing. So we like to talk about things like that. We talk about, you know, the, the quill work, which, you know, the idea... You know, if you took a life, you had to use everything. Um, we're working on an exhibit that we don't know whether it's going to be a static or whether we're going to be doing, again, electronic. That's a wonderful diagram of a buffalo and all the different parts and how they were used. Yeah. So that you can see that. Things like that. Um, it's just uh, interacting with the public is always exciting. Right. And you're obviously an educator um, just by your nature, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with... Uh, my father, who was Italian um, and became a citizen, uh, he spoke three or four languages pretty well and bits and pieces of German. Nice. Um, my mom uh, was <laughs> the wild card. She was a native, and um, at one point she was in the roller derby. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, episode number two. <laughs> yeah, she was a character. So, But she was always very proud of her heritage. And one of the Great. things I noticed personally growing up um, up in the East Coast in Alexandria, Virginia, um, was that people had this attitude that, you know, natives lived in the past or only on reservations. Right. I had a high school teacher say, real Indians don't exist anymore in class. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so it, that'll that's effective. That'll well. motivate you. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the name of the show is Treasures of the Outer Banks. You're definitely a treasure. What you guys are doing here is just amazing. I wish you the best of luck, and I recommend anybody who's on the Outer Banks heading down to uh, Hatteras Island, stop by uh, in Frisco. It's right next to the highway, uh, Frisco Native American Museum. Uh, Barbara, thanks for your time. Oh, no way. You're welcome. I appreciate Barbara Miller sitting down and talking with me. After talking to her, it makes me realize how little I actually know about Native Americans. They're all so different. They all have different customs and cultures, and they all come from different uh, terrains, geographies, different languages. Uh, it's, it's almost a little overwhelming as to how much information is missing. So I appreciate her taking the time and talking to me and at least filling me in on a little part of the country that I didn't know a whole lot about. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. Feel free to stop by uh, the website, treasuresoftheouterbanks.com, and see what we have going on. Sign up for the emails. 
uh, happy to send stuff out to you. I usually send something out with a, the, the latest podcast, and I also send something out every Friday with what's going on on the Outer Banks. So check it out, sign up, and we hope to see you next time. Have a good one.